welcome to episode 161 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're about to talk about something that on our own we have actually very little knowledge about, and that is righteousness and holiness. Of course, it's true. We'll be talking about that alien righteousness and holiness in the context of what God is, who God is in his intrinsic being and character, but that's coming in just a little bit because first, we got to affirm some things, we got to deny some things. So I'll leave it up to you, dealer's choice. Where do you want to start? Uh, let let's. I'll start with the like the throw the the haymaker punch and see if it <laughs> derails the entire episode. I love so, it. Uh, I'm I'm uh, you know I've mentioned a couple times we have this new show on the network called the Baptist Broadcast uh, with the host's name's Josh Summer and he's just a sharp dude and he and I go he and I go way back and um, we've partnered on a couple different kinds of projects in the past so I'm super thrilled to have him but he he I didn't know all of the context of this but he posted a comment on Facebook which James the great James White I probably shouldn't be as sarcastic as I'm being uh, James White decided to actually respond to in his very James White fashion and um, Josh put out a very well thought out response um, I think he, uh, he handled it in a mature fashion. He didn't get caught up in trying to trade rhetorical, um, you know, uh, bombastic blows with James White, which is never a winning battle. But what I'm, what the, where this comes in is I'm affirming Josh, but that's because I'm denying neo Sassinianism. So, nice. you know, there, there's this like complex, and we've talked about this, it kind of fits into this theology proper series we're working on. There's this complex of different figures and perspectives. And, you know, anytime like a new movement or a new counter movement, which is really kind of what's going on, comes comes to the front, it takes a while before it sort of like solidifies into a like a movement that can be labeled in some sort of accurate way. And I think we're actually getting to this point. I've been calling some of these figures Sassinians or comparing them to the Sassinians now for a number of years. I think the first person that I ever called a a neo-Sassinian was probably William Lane Craig. But the, the Sassinians in the Reformation were this group of people... They were biblicists, not biblical. They were biblicists, meaning that they they wanted to limit their theological reflection, not just to the concepts that are present in Scripture, but to the very words themselves that were present in Scripture. Right. So, um, you know, Michael Servetus of Burning at the Stake fame, uh, he was kind of famously known because he refused to really use the word Trinity in his own articulation because Trinity is not in the Bible, right? So, so it's this radical commitment to the the physical form of Scripture uh, at the detriment of the actual concepts of Scripture. Um, so there's a number of other elements in this sort of Sassinian complex, but if you look at sort of the people who are pushing back against classical Christian categories, classical Christian theism it really is sort of this idea that like we just go to the Bible and and we don't ever think about church history. We don't really utilize the tools that systematic theology has given us. And the reason I bring that up is that James White is sort of, it's, it's a strange, he's kind of weird bedfellows with this group because he's, he's normally known as like a pretty sharp systematician, right? But he's, he's sort of in the service, I think of sort of the culture wars. He's abandoned that persistent uh, position a little bit. 
I mean, sort of like locked arms with people who are taking this more neo Sassinian approach, like Owen Strahan and um, Jeffrey Johnson. And what it ends up with is just rejecting these these classical theological categories that the church has given us, these patterns of sound word to use that Pauline language of, of how we talk about this non-biblical language that's still faithfully representing the, the revelation of God, not inspired, but certainly true and authoritative insofar as it is uh, conformable to the scriptures. So I'm denying this neo-Sassinian movement. And I think the church really needs to kind of like get it together, I think, because we're not, we're not really like responding to these for the most part. It seems like the, the majority of the responses are coming from just sort of like yokels like you and me who have like 600, 700 people that listen to us. And that's really just not going to cut it. So I think we need to, as a church broadly, we need to sort of respond to this stuff in maybe a little bit more programmatic way, but I'm denying this neo-Sassinian movement because it really just does end up rejecting like basic, important Christian categories. For the record, did you just package up an affirmation in denial, or was that just the denial piece with a sneaking in an affirmation? It was just the denial piece with oh. a little sneaky affirmation in there. Tricky. I like that because it started with total affirmation and then went into an unbelievable denial. It was great. I was trying to trick you it's to really, see which one you would think it was. I was going to say, it's really everything you wanted and more in both of those things. Yeah. Of course, like I'm totally down with what uh, you're talking about here. I think for those who are listening that might be unfamiliar, like you said with the term, the introduction you provided was really great. We're, we're talking about at least like in its original conception, this kind of unorthodox form of non-Trinitarianism. And it was developed about the same time as the Protestant Reformation. So if you're unfamiliar with it, that term, that's okay. You should definitely look it up. It's helpful. But it's kind of rationalistic in its approach to scripture and faith, like you were saying. So in some ways right. where I've seen it like manifest, and this is kind of weird, right? I, I Now, many people would disagree with me if you hold this view, but it's kind of this philosophical approach essentially in regard to biblical doctrine, which you're saying like the biblicist idea, but it declares that all these religious matters must be reconcilable with human reason. And that like all the theological matters pertaining to the nature of God cannot be beyond like our actual finite understanding of the human mind. So the question I would have for you is like, when you say Neo, are you saying it's it's just Sassanianism warmed over or is there kind of like a new nuance or new flavor superimposed on the old? I think it's a little bit of both. I think if there is something new about it, it's actually more along the lines that it, it actually rejects that reason part. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's it's not only is it rejecting the systematic categories um, that have been present in the history of the church, it's also rejecting natural theology and natural, re- not natural revelation. And that's, this is one of the weird things is they draw, they tend to draw this really firm distinction between natural theology and natural revelation as though it's these radically different things. Right. Natural theology is just our theological reflections on natural um, revelation rather than our theological reflections on special revelation. So there, there isn't this weird, there's not this weird distinction that they seem to play, but there is sort of this, um, this sort of rejection that I'm seeing um, of a systematizing principle in theology. So, so they'll reject a lot of times the idea that, you know, one thing we'll say is if you commit yourself to proposition A, let's say that there's movement in God, then you've also logically committed yourself to proposition B, C, and D. And, and we usually, the when it's done right, you demonstrate how a necessarily leads to B, C, and D. They a lot of times reject that and sort of just by force of statement or force of will, 
even if they recognize that there is a logical progression, they're just going to say like, well, yeah, I can, I, I can understand what you're saying that like that might lead to tritheism or it might lead to mono, you know, like a, a unitarianism. Right. But I don't believe that. But like, there's no logical explanation for why there's no logical break that would prevent you from falling into that. So, I, I mean, I, I think for the most part, it's just sort of this radical biblicist notion that was prominent in the Sassinians kind of warmed over. But they're also what, what seems to be a little bit new about it is that there does seem to be this rejection of some of these systematizing impulses and systematizing categories as well. Right on. That's a great denial. That, that's coming in hot on this episode. Yeah. Right from the top. Yeah, I come out swinging. <laughs> yeah, you weren't joking around when you said, it's let's just haymaker. go with the haymaker first and see yeah. what happens after this. We can do, honestly, the reason why I think we're both like tentative and pausing here is like, we're trying to decide in real time, has this just become the episode we're about to launch <laughs> into a thorough treatment of this whole yeah. thing? Let's just say no for the sake of our own sanity today. That's fair. So let me transition us. I'll go into my denial, which I think is the insect equivalent of neo sassinism So like I'm denying against something that I've been told that I should deny against. I'm a little bit out of depth here. I'm trusting the experts. And that is I'm denying against something called the spotter and lantern, lantern fly. Do you guys have these in New Hampshire? I have no idea what that is. Have Those you ever heard of this thing? It, so, I'm going to in a second. Yeah, take a look at this bad boy. So apparently this is like a really invasive species. It has been found in Pennsylvania for many years, apparently since 2014. But I'm looking at some information from the Pennsylvania State University, which has done extensive research on this. And all I know is I've been told if you see one of these bad boys to kill it, like it's just open season on these things. And what I'm reading here is that apparently they have a piercing sucking mouth part which feeds Ooh. on sap from over 70 different plant species and by penn state's estimate it could cost at least 324 million dollars annually to the pennsylvania economy so i guess it's like a really again like just aggressive invasive species of a type of fly they're rather large but i'm denying them now because i only just saw them i've never seen one before and then this weird thing showed up on my back door. I actually took a picture of it and sent it to a good friend of mine who is a landscape architect who knows something about, you know, flora and fauna. And I was like, do I crush this thing? And she's like, kill it right now. Like all capital letters, like kill it right yeah. now. So like yeah. I just stopped everything I was doing. What's weird is like, they're kind of beautiful in their own right. They kind of, are. So it's a, it's a weird thing, but apparently like yeah. they're, they're super aggressive. This is like a weird it's like a weird state of like the natural order, right? Can we just say like, this is yeah. a weird thing. Like there's, there's sin in this and there's a natural order. There's groaning and there's like, I'm supposed to go kill this fly. And I would say fly is probably a misnomer, right? Cause can you tell how big they are? Like they're almost like more like moths. They're pretty big. Yeah. They look, and they look like moths. Their, their coloring pattern is, looks a little bit more moth. Like you ready for me to turn this into an overly theological topic. I'm always ready. <laughs> Isn't that what we're always doing? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, this is another new... This is Adventures in Genesis 3, right? Yes, like, do it. Like, the fact is, like, God establishes... Right, in Acts, it says that God establishes the boundaries of nations. So right. there's this principle, right? We affirm God's sovereignty. We affirm that he is... is All things unfold according to the, you know, the good pleasure of his will and according to his decrees. Factually whatsoever comes to pass. And that includes the fact that in this post-fall world... And I would actually maybe argue potentially in a pre-fall world had Adam succeeded, there is this propensity for nature to go a little bit amok, mm -hmm. right? So these, these just from the immediate brief research I did, these, these are a 
native to China kind of a bug and they've made their way over here. In China, it doesn't seem like they cause the same kinds of problems that they do here. But when you bring them here, all of a sudden, they're destroying trees, they're attacking, attracting wasps and other bugs right. that aren't supposed to be there. And like the impulse for... Uh, the you know the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture to say crush them kill them kill them that's actually us trying to fulfill the creation mandate, and this is just an example of like the fall ruins everything, and and I I sort of hint at this little like maybe theory I have that like part of Adam's task was to rein in nature and that nature is sort of this intrinsically chaotic element and Adam is called to bring that chaotic element outside of the garden into the harmony of the garden by extending that harmony out, that shalom out into the rest of the world. I'm kind of channeling a little bit of Meredith Klein there. I love it. Um, I, I think that's a real thing. And I think like that's not something that stopped in the fall. Adam's, Adam's a fundamental task that he was given to keep and work the garden didn't change his ability to do it and the reward and the, the uh, ease by which it happens. That's what was affected in the fall. But that's why there's still this impulse that all humans feel to cultivate things, to go to yes. farm or to hunt or to do husbandry or to build stuff. That's all related to our fundamental makeup as humans, particularly men to want to do those kinds of things. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm not a handy guy, but like I mentioned before, like I get immense satisf satisfaction from like mowing the lawn and making it look nice and like making it not chaotic. So yeah, this is a good one. This is a, we'll just have to do like every chapter of the Bible is going to have like an intro uh, adventures in Malachi seven. I don't know if there's seven <laughs> chapters, only six chapters in Malachi, I think, but it'd be like adventures in Psalm 72. Right. I don't know. No, that, was, that could be a whole podcast right on. on its own. Yeah. We should definitely do that series. This is, I think you're of course spot on. Uh, I mean, the lanternfly is spotted, so nobody knows that. I was making a pun that nobody was actually going to even understand. <laughs> I caught it. Yeah. I caught it. I was all over that. Yeah. So um, the thing about this is I think sometimes we forget that when, of course, God in Genesis 1 sets up this order of creation, we, we're so familiar with this term of like the Garden of Eden that sometimes we forget that like Eden is a place and within that place maybe not exclusively the whole of that place, there is a garden that God creates. And the mandate really was like, take control and dominion here and then expand out, push out. And of course, right. at that time, the expansion of the family of God came through procreation. That's how God's family grew. So here we're doing that same thing. We're either reining it in or we're expanding it out, but in such a way that right. honors that initial mandate. So I will also say, because you picked up on something, like you're, well ahead of, you're way ahead of me, and I feel like you just looked it up. So the keen listener... Our brothers and sisters who have heard me talk about insects before will remember that I think it was two episodes ago I spoke about the largest hornet's nest I've ever seen in my entire life, which is located maybe not less than 50 feet from where I sit right now. I have to wonder if these two things are connected because, again, like Could you be. said, one of the things Could about be. the spotted lantern flies apparently they attract neighbors, and those neighbors are hornets. Yeah, and it's not because the hornets eat the spotted lantern flies. It's because the horn, the spotted lantern flies basically poop out sugar, <laughs> which attracts the hornets and the wasps. So there you go. Yeah, that's true. See, I have to wonder, because again, this hornet's nest, which again is like the size of Goliath's head, is the first time I've ever seen this. Also, first time I've ever seen the spotted lantern fly like on our property. So you do have to wonder. I really wish that you had written the description now for the spotted lanternfly hearing. Because <laughs> it, it basically, the spotted lanternfly and the mythical unicorn kind of have like the, apparently the same excrement. It's true. 
<laughs> You've been watching Squatty Potty commercials. <laughs> wow. Uh, man. We are not know, sponsored by Squatty Potty. The beauty of our episodes is that there's always this lovely tension where any moment they could derail into just complete chaos. And yet, in our way, our desire to bring dominion over even this episode, we rein it back in. So, what are you affirming today? So I'm affirming, uh, this is a two-part affirmation, one just because I love the pun. Uh, I'm affirming a book by Dr. Strange, Dr. Alan Strange. Uh, I love that he goes by Dr. Strange even after the, the Marvel comic movie and all of the Dr. Strange awareness that come with that. But I'm, I'm affirming a book. Uh, it's got a very kind of a Puritan-esque title. It's called Imputation of the Active Obedience of Christ in the Westminster Standards. Boom. So it's a relatively short book. It's published by Reformation Heritage Books. Uh, I started it this morning on the Lord's Day. And it's just a really great book. It's kind of the, the point of it is, you know, this has kind of been a complex of uh, publications that people who are professors at Mid-America Reform Seminary have published sort of in response to the Federal Vision. One thing that I don't think people realize about how seminaries work is that seminary faculty tend to all have sort of uh, coordinate views, and so they tend to respond to controversies as a group. So like uh, the book, one of the books that was published by Westminster Seminary in California was a sort of a promulgation of the republication thesis, right? Because most of the professors there hold that in common. So this is one of those books that came out of it that is sort of a response to what's going on with the federal vision. And so one of the main things, one of the main ways the federal vision people try to get away with it is by saying like, well, the Westminster standards don't require that the active obedience of Christ is imputed to us. And so we don't have to con- affirm that either to be confessional. Well, Dr. Strange, his uh, his thesis here and the work that he's laboring for is to prove that not only do the Westminster standards, uh, just because they don't speak directly about the active uh, obedience of Christ and the imputation thereof, they actually, anytime they reference or talk about related topics, the active obedience of Christ and the imputation of it to believers is implicit and is necessary to make sense of what the rest of the confession says. So I finished the first chapter, which just kind of explains his approach. It was excellent. It was concise. Uh, and then like he has chapters on like prede- you know, uh, predecessor theology in the medieval era, the Reformation era. Um, but it's a short book. It's only about 130 pages or so, and it's small, small dimensions. So you'll be able to work through it pretty quickly. But anybody who is concerned about the confessional position on justification and recognizes how uh, it is to our detriment if we think that that is a battleground that no longer needs to be fought on, this is a book you should pick up. Because the threats to the doctrine of justification by faith alone are never going to go away. Right. And active obedience is absolutely foundational to the Protestant, not just reform, but Protestant understanding of uh, justification. This doctrine of active obedience and its imputation is absolutely central to what it means to be justified by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone, all of the solas. So pick it up. It's probably pretty cheap. I won it in a contest, so I have no idea how much it costs. It says $10 on the back of the book, so you're probably going to get it around that on Amazon. That's some affordable imputation theology right there. It is. Yeah. It's true. I love that. I'm going to definitely check that out. You know, here's a quick uh, imputation excursus. So Recently, I was doing some studying in the realm of finance. And, you know, sometimes when you come across words like imputation, propitiation, you get this sense like, oh, these are like really 
course, like old, somewhat in some people's minds, archaic words. We don't at least right. use them in normal conversation or like colloquial conversation. And so there's like this sense that like, well, they're just not relevant anymore and we should somehow do away with them. And uh, I was reading in this text about this is so nerdy and lame, but like different tax methods. So like lots of countries, you know, if you own equity in a company, if you own a piece of stock, if you're paid a dividend, the company is going to be taxed on its, I promise this is coming to invitation. It's going to be taxed on its income. And then there's this sense of double taxation because if they pay out portion of that income to their shareholders in the form of dividend, then of course you pay tax too, at least in the United States. But one of the competing methods is, you guessed it, called the imputation tax method, which this, I laughed out loud because this book went on to say like, well, here's how imputation works. The company pays the tax and then it's credited to you as the investor, as if you paid it yourself. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, where's Paul? I was like, are we about, (laughs) there's about to be a presentation about the gospel right here. It didn't actually happen in that text. But so what you're saying is taxation is not theft. It's actually the gospel. <laughs> it depends, Hashtag not something Tony actually believes. It depends on uh, which method of taxation we're talking about here. So at least in this case, I just loved that basically somebody who was trying to articulate this, and it is a common theory apparently. I've just never heard it under those terms. Apparently, the only way to really describe that was with the word imputation. And I thought, nice. wow, what a lovely callback to like, you know, the original imputation, not injection talking about imputation. It's true. It's a true story. Yeah. Well, Jesse, what are you affirming today? This will be really brief. I'm just going with a website on this episode and I'm affirming with a website called musictheory.net. If you're a person that's interested in music or you play an instrument and you think either you've learned something about music theory, which is of course just really trying to understand how notes go together and what scales mean and like how all this stuff could do music theory. If you're a musician is really the way to take your playing to the next level to uh, like unlock your ability to be more creative, more confident in your playing. And this website just has like amazing free lessons that are like totally approachable. They don't go over your head. It's just a great way to like kind of explore honestly, like the goodness of God and the way that he has purposely designed sound to come together in pleasurable and pleasant ways. And then of course, so much of our, the way at least right or wrong, we think about worship is of course associated with music. And so I think if you're a musician or just musician interested in all kinds, all people go check out musictheory.net. It's a really super sweet little website and a lot of wonderful free content that's approachable. Nice. That's a great recommendation. Yeah. You I know. should check that out. We're all I like theories. Yeah, we're all about I think like this seems like one of those topics where it's like too heady unless you're like you're super interested in it, but it's just kind of like unlocking the way things work with music. So it's one thing to play, it's another thing to maybe just get a firmer grasp on like, well, why are there half steps between certain notes? And how do if somebody says I want to transition into a different key, how can I do that easily? How can I kind of create this rubric in my mind to approach it so that I just, you know, again, am more capable and qualified in the music that I want to create? It's really, I think, like a fun little rabbit hole to go down in this website is a great way. It's kind of like the gateway, if you will. It's one of the best that I've found. Nice. Well, let's uh, let's transition to our topic. And as, as you uh, astute listeners may know, Jesse and I have embarked on this uh, probably rather lengthy journey of reviewing kind of the fundamentals and basics of systematic theology. So the podcast has become 
reviewing the fundamentals and basics of systematic <laughs> theology. And so right now we're kind of in the in the progress of this uh, sort of theology proper section. And so we've covered uh, what's usually called prolegomena. We kind of subsumed that into theology proper. It's usually distinct. Kind of talking about how difficult it is and the challenges we have uh, and some of the some of the bumpers that we have to put up to even try to talk about God. And then we talked about this cluster of doctrines called classical Christian theism, primarily focusing on things like divine simplicity and then things that are entailments of that. And then last week we talked about the omni-attributes and how the omni-attributes really are a good example of how when we talk about God, even when we sort of think we're saying something constructive or a positive attribute, we're describing what God is, then in reality what we're actually doing is we're describing what God is not. Right. This week we're going to transition into a couple attributes or a couple uh, properties which are usually considered uh, communicable properties or communicable attributes. And there is this venerable distinction in in Reformed theology and other theological systems between incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. And I, although I have some concerns about those categories, I think overall they, they fit pretty well. And once we transition into these communicable attributes, which means that they're attributes that in some way God shares with his creatures right. in a way that might be a little bit more than analogous, but not quite univocal. There's sort of this like overlap that when we say that we're righteous, we don't mean exactly the same thing as what we say when God's righteous, but it's it's not just analogical. There's a, there's a closer continuity. We can describe these things more in positive terms because instead of trying to describe something where there is no continuity with the creature, like simplicity, there's there's no way to describe a creature as simple right. in, in terms of not composite because creatures necessarily are. So we have to use only this analogical language. When we get into these communicable attributes, because we're describing something where there is more continuity in terms of God's righteousness means a certain thing, and then that that defines what it means for a creature to be righteous. So there's this communication, this continuity between that. We can start to get a little closer to using true positive comments or true positive uh, descriptions of those things. So to, to kind of transition us into that, I want to read uh, a question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This is question four. Honestly, this is like one of my favorite questions because it's such a good, short, concise description of God. And it, it hits all the points, right? So the question, question four is, what is God? And then it says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, right? So right there, we're talking about the incommunicable attributes. That's that's the classical theism that we uh, talked about in the past several episodes. Right on. And then it says, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now we're starting to shift into communicable attributes. Right. Wisdom and power kind of cover, uh, and truth in a certain sense, but they kind of cover what we talked about last week with omniscience and omnipotence. And, and you know, if you go back and listen, we sort of commented on this fact that, like, in some ways, these omni attributes are communicable in that we have knowledge, God has knowledge, so there's a point of continuity. But in other ways, they're not. That God's knowledge is totally different in relation to His being than our knowledge is in relation to our being. But it's these last sort of three, um, these three attributes that I want to focus on: holiness, justice. And goodness. And so when we talk about God, once we've got sort of the fundamental nature of God, 
these classical Christian theism categories. Now we have to start to talk about moral categories. We have to talk about what kind of God this is in terms of how he how he relates to truth and morality and righteousness and goodness. And and as we'll see, because of divine simplicity, he he relates to those. He doesn't relate to those because he is those things. But that's where we're going today is to sort of unpack and discuss some of those attributes and kind of how how we need to think about them in relation to who and what God is. And this is like a classic pairing, isn't it? Holiness and righteousness, although some might th- see those as separate things, they do have distinctions, but they come into one another. It's like peanut butter and chocolate or peanut butter and bananas, or I guess it, one of them has to be peanut butter, apparently, in my mind, because th- there's the just like these things everything. do go together. They're yeah. they're separate and distinct in some ways, and yet, of course, like they come into this like cohesiveness with one another. So let's kind of start with this sense of holiness. I think this is one of these places where people would expect us to go. And especially if you've, you've been in the reformed tradition for any length of time and you know, the name R.C. Sproul and his <laughs> almost seminal work on the holiness of God, you know, like his emphasis of this, like the, the thrice repeated characteristic of God in the scriptures and his appropriate emphasis of that characteristic. And so we should unpack this, like I think, a little bit, because sometimes holiness, I, I almost feel like sometimes it kind of actually becomes more narrowed in a desire to make it less narrowed, if that makes sense. So, you yeah. know, for me, really like the holiness of God is kind of like the cornerstone of Christian faith, because it's really the foundation of reality. We just don't realize that, that the holiness of God, who God is, this, this characteristic of himself is really what defines our reality because sin is in defiance of God's holiness. You know, the cross is the outworking and the victory of God's holiness and faith is the recognition of God's holiness. So all these elements in daily living, you know, Monday through Saturday, and then I guess I just segmented the Lord's day as like the special day. um, Knowing that God is holy is like the key to knowing life as it truly is supposed to be, knowing Christ as he truly is, knowing why he came, knowing how life will end. And maybe people might be interested to know, and certainly you're aware of this, Tony, like that there is like a fully orb definition of holiness is interesting because there's a lot of nuance to it. More nuance than people might expect. So like right. generally holiness is sometimes described as like freedom from all defilement, defilement or like not defilement. There's some defining that's happening here. A purity that is like total or it's like utterly untainted. And often it's not treated as a distinct attribute alongside goodness, perfection and the beauty of God. But it does consist of this, like you said, moral perfection or purity. And it's sometimes more closely associated with God's righteousness, his goodness, trustworthiness, wisdom. Almost everyone is going to acknowledge the concept of the holiness of God in the Old and the New Testament, and that that expresses a relation of God to the world. But what's interesting to me is that there's actually some nuance about the precise character of that revelation. So like, let me just throw out there, like from what I understand, like kind of three perspectives, two of them are very close and more related. So with a view to texts like Hosea and Isaiah and Ezekiel, some would say, some theologians would say like they associate the holiness of God with God's condescending goodness and grace. So we have that represented in this otherness of God being represented in the condescension, condescension of Christ coming and living among us. 
some other theologians would emphasize God's like utter transcendence. This is where we often go. Transcendence and power over all creatures. And that's expressed in his holiness, appealing to books like Numbers. Some like Isaiah, you know, here is God seated on the throne. And to this linkage between glory and holiness in texts like Isaiah 63. And then the last one I would say is like, there's some, sometimes you see this writing about this closely related view to one that associates God's holiness with his like majesty his yeah. inapproachability, the infinite distance that separates him from all creatures. Just like in Exodus, you have the Israelites worshiping at the base of Mount Sinai. They hear and they see God smoking on the mountain. They say, we don't want anything to do with that. Somebody please, literally for the love of God, mediate between us and this God who is before us. So what I find interesting is like holiness isn't maybe this narrow or simplistic concept that we have to make. It's not necessarily one thing, but here you have theologians speaking about kind of all of this diversity within it that again, like we said before, it's a jewel you can pick up and turn over in your hands and look at from different angles. I don't know that it's any one of these things exclusively, but it seems to me that certainly all of these things in various degrees. Yeah. And, and you know, holiness is one of those interesting things in that it, it's not really any one thing. It's actually like a complex of concepts. Exactly. Right. So, so when we think about holiness as kind of this, lack of mixture, lack of composition, or lack of corruption. Well, what do you do when you have something that is totally free of corruption that you want to remain free of corruption? Well, you set it aside in a special container so that nothing right. can get into it, right? So this concept of like being set apart, which is also part of the conversation with the word holiness or sanctification, this concept of being set apart really has to do with like preserving or sustaining or or justifying that lack of of mixture that that purity of form or purity of in in the case of God we're usually talking about moral purity right but you can easily see that like divine simplicity plays into that right right if we're talking about holiness as a lack of a lack of corruption or a lack of mixture well that that God who is simple cannot be anything but holy because he is one single simple thing that cannot bear any sort of composition. And so the very concept of a, of a, of a corruption in God is like antithetical to what it means to be God. So when we talk about holiness, we have to sort of like take all these different concepts and sort of figure out how they relate to one another and how they cluster together. And, and one of the things that I think is, is also important is with all due respect to the late R.C. Sproul, holiness is not the central attribute of God. Right. right. There's no such thing as a central attribute right. of God because God is simple. And so I, I understand that, that what Dr. Sproul was trying to get at, and I understand that probably if you really pressed him on it, he would have articulated this in a, a more classical theist compatible kind of way. But an emphasis in the scripture on a particular thing does not necessarily mean uh, a outsized reality in terms of the actuality of God. Right. Right. So the fact that God emphasizes his holiness in this sort of unique, thrice elevated way that, that Dr. Sproul kind of latched onto as a younger Christian and sort of built his whole ministry around, that doesn't necessarily mean that God is, in some sense, holy. You know, go holiness is not some governing attribute that sort of regulates every other attribute. 
Um, but, but I think it's important because, you know, when we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking about the otherness, the separatedness of right. God. So there's that transcendence, but then that's there, there's the paradoxical element that God expresses that holiness, that lack of composition, that lack of corruption, that lack of moral imperfection, which we call holiness. He demonstrates that and he expresses that by becoming one of us and becoming in, you know, uh, imminent with us. Right. Yes. So, so it is this interesting, complicated, difficult under, to understand doctrine. But at the end of the day, we have to affirm holiness is fundamental to the nature of God, because that's the way the Scripture portrays it. Right. The Holy One of Israel, the Holy Spirit. Right. Uh, Jesus Christ. The you know the the Holy Infant. Even though that's not necessarily biblical language, it's language that the Church has used to describe uh, Christ in this sort of divine sense. And and this is where we, you know, we'll we'll talk about how this plays out when we talk about this being communicated to humans. We'll probably talk about that, you know, like six and a half years from now when we get to soteriology. <laughs> but but when we talk about the holiness of God, we cannot draw too close of a of a relationship between what it means to be holy as a person and what it means to be holy as God. Right on. Even when we talk about the alien righteousness that is imputed to us to sort of bring a lot of threads together. We're not even talking about God's holiness. We're talking about Christ's holiness as a human that he obtained according to the covenant of works. So we just have to be, I think we have to be intentional when we're talking about God's holiness to make sure we don't confuse those categories of sort of creaturely holiness and uh, divine holiness. So even, even the set apartness, when we talk about God being set apart, we don't really use that language. Right, we talk about God being wholly other, or being somehow separate, or, or transcendent. Is like that's another way to say holy. Is right. he's transcendent? He's above and beyond creation, and he's above and beyond sin. He's above and beyond these creaturely realities. We talk about holiness in the creature. We talk about something being set apart. Well, there's an agent who sets them apart, and that agent is God. God is not set apart by anyone or anything. He simply is holy other or transcendent apart from other things. So we have to be, I think we have to be careful with holiness because we can fall into some bad patterns. Um, I think for good reasons, but we fall into some bad patterns if we're not careful. I'm glad you said it that way. You actually preempted what I was going to say next. And that was kind of a recapitulation of what you just said here, which is sometimes when we describe God as holy, we immediately like just jump into this. Well, like he's set apart as if like, that's the predominant method of expressing or the mode of expressing what holiness means. He is set apart because he is holy. So like, it's not as if right. like, because God gets set apart, therefore we justify him as holy. And that's how we express our language around right. what it means that he is holy because God is holy. It's, it's better to say, and this is where I kind of fall into that second view predominantly. Cause I think our minds do tend to gravitate toward one or the other conception. I, when I think of holiness, I do think of God in his character, in his being, in his person and persona as one who is otherworldly, alien in the sense that he's so completely, utterly unlike me that there is no category for him. Because of that, he by nature is set apart because we just have right. no way to describe the immense distance the segregation that exists between essentially his creation and who he is. So of course, like that is both purity because it's undefiled, 
but predominantly it's just a way of saying like, you know, if like aliens were a thing and like they just dropped into earth, you'd be like, this being is so unlike anything I can possibly comprehend or understand or know. It's just so different. It's unchartered. It's, it's dangerous. It's outside of my understanding. There is no conception. There's no way to describe it. There's no way to preempt it. There's no way to understand it. There's no way to predict it. All of this we find in God, and we basically we've kind of like distilled and consolidated that down into this one word of holiness. But it's right. been like like you said, we tend to define it in reverse. We talk about what again to use your word from before, like what imputation affords to us as beneficiaries of Christ's death and the work of the Holy Spirit, and then we apply that backwards to God and say, well, because God set us apart, that's what it primarily means for God to be holy. It's like, well, He's set apart, but right. it's it's almost like. God cannot help but be set apart because he is holy. So it, I think you're right. Like the order of how we speak about this, even in the use of adjectives, does actually matter because it does shape how we understand who God is and also like what he requires of us, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that to keep in mind is that in the scriptures, creaturely holiness is fundamentally about godlikeness. Right. So so when we uh, right there it just tells you we can't talk about God as godlike because he's god. So so there is this disparity in how we have to use the language. So like set apart we use set apart in sort of that sense of there is something or someone setting something apart, sanctified for holy purposes or sanctified for temple uses or whatever. God cannot be set apart that way. So so when we mark something off as particular or for a particular religious use, we're actually associating that thing with God in a way that other things are not associated with God. So so the separatedness of God defines what it means for something to be separated for holy purposes. And that that I think is something we miss a lot because we we tend to think of holy simply in terms of like morally good. Right. And it certainly has those connotations, but that that has those connotations not because holiness is fundamentally about morality or morals. It's because fundamentally God is morally good. And so holiness is about being like God. And so it carries that connotation of holiness. We're going to get, you know, we'll, we'll transition here to talking about righteousness and goodness. Those words actually have much more to do with moral conformity and moral uprightness than holiness does. And so before, you know, before we kind of launch into that, it's just important to remember holiness only carries that connotation of moral goodness because of its act, because of its character of meanings like God, right? I'm looking at the, um, the uh, lexicon entry for Hagias in the New Testament, and it says here, pertaining to being holy in the sense of superior moral qualities and, and possessing certain essentially divine qualities in contrast with what is human. Right. So, so we just have to kind of keep that in mind that those moral qualities are related to the divine qualities in opposition to, uh, to sort of human or fleshly qualities. That's where we get passages like in um, Galatians, or you know, it says live, live, you know, walk by the spirit, and it contrasts that to walking by the flesh. Well, it's talking about walking in holiness in terms of walking according to a pattern of life that is conformed to divine principles versus a pattern of life that's def- defined by worldly principles. So this concept of holiness is so much more related to 
to associating with God and being called apart and set apart by God and that association therein. So I, I, I mean, we can belabor that point, I think, as much as we want, but I do think it's something that Christians a lot of times sort of get wrong. We really think about it almost exclusively in moral categories without recognizing why it is those moral categories are, are associated with the word holiness. Because if we're not careful, we think of the word righteousness and holiness as though they're just kind of like crass synonyms, right. and they really aren't. Right. We, there, there's a, a, a valid theological and biblical difference between the concept of righteousness and holiness that we really need to understand in order to make proper sense of some of the biblical data. And that's why the pairing is so beautiful, right? It's like having like right. a fine wine with some kind of good piece of meat that's like perfectly together in bringing out each of the other. So righteousness really is to holiness what chocolate is to peanut butter because righteousness is that perfection of God by which he's maintaining himself over and against every violation of his holiness and shows in every respect that he is the holy one. So the righteousness of God is evident in the way he consistently acts in accord with his own character. I I mean, this is kind of crass, but it's almost like the outpouring of his holiness is his righteousness and his goodness. God always acts righteously. His every action is consistent with his character. God is always consistently godly to basically kind of, again, summarize what you're saying before. So God is not defined by the term righteous as much as the term righteous is defined by God, of course. So God is not measured by the standard of righteousness. He's setting that standard of righteousness and righteousness is an outworking or outpouring of his holiness. Yeah. And you know, when we talk about righteousness, the most common definition that I've run into, you know, kind of like maybe think about like youth group definitions or like Bible study definitions, the kind of stuff that gets sort of tossed out, you know, as what when we're studying a passage and someone says, well, what is righteousness? It's about conformity to some sort of external standard. Right. Right. It's it's about in, in Christian concept, it's about conformity to and a proper relationship with uh, some sort of external stand, you know, external standard, namely the law of God. So you can be righteous in relation to some sort of standard. So I have a set of policies I'm obligated to follow at work. I can be considered righteous in, in reference to those policies, or if I don't follow them, I could be considered unrighteous in reference to those. When I drive down the road to go to work in the morning or to go to get my Dunkin' Donuts or to go visit a friend, there's a speed limit sign. And right. I can be considered righteous in reference to that speed limit sign if I'm following that law, or if I'm not following the law, I can be considered unrighteous in reference to that. And so, in, again, in creaturely, in creaturely understanding, in creaturely sort of arenas, it's about this conformity to this external law, external morality, whatever that may be. When we're talking about God, though, it, you're exactly right. It's the perfection that he has in which he is entirely consistent with his own perfect holy nature, right? So I have a, I have a, um, a nature, and there are times that I do things that are damaging to that nature, right? I like donuts. It's not always good for me to eat donuts. <laughs> so sometimes I don't do something that's in the best interest of my nature, and I eat too many donuts. I mean, that's kind of a, a silly example. We could get into more serious examples like people who struggle with drug addiction. Right, right? sure. Most drugs, most most kinds of drugs that people get addicted to have some sort of lawful or illicit use, but it's this illicit use in contra- contra- um, contradiction to 
the nature of a person that becomes a problem. I think most drug addicts that I've ever talked to, and I haven't talked to too many, but most of them recognize that what they're doing is damaging to their body. They recognize that what they're doing isn't good. So, so when we talk about righteousness as humans, we're, we're talking about this external standard. When we talk about the righteousness of God, we can't measure him by some sort of external standard. Otherwise, that standard becomes superior to God. Right, exactly. This is one of the classic kind of classic conundrums of theology in terms of like, is something, this is called the Euthyphro dilemma, if anybody's interested in looking it up. Is something righteous because it's righteous in and of itself? Some sort of, some sort of overarching um, standard that makes something righteous, and therefore God is righteous because of conformity to the standard external to Himself, or is it simply righteous because because that's what God does? And then the you know the dilemma is that well that makes it arbitrary. The answer is well no because God defines reality, so His own standard of His nature is the standard, but. There's a good principle there is that we have to recognize we can't treat the righteousness of God as though it is the conformity to this external standard, right? We can't say that God is truthful because of some sort of external standard of truth. We have to say God is truthful because that's fundamentally what God is. Right on. And so so we understand what truthful means because we look at what God says in his word about how he functions and what he is. That's what determines truthfulness. And righteousness is the same thing. There is no external standard which God is required to conform to. So when we look at God, and again, it, it's it's surprising to me how surprising this is because it shouldn't be. When we talk about divine simplicity, it's no wonder that God is conformable to the standard of his own nature because he is, he is the fundamentally <laughs> his nature. There is no distinction between essence and existence in God in which there could be some sort of inconsistency introduced as a result of corruption or impurity, right? So there's where you see holiness and righteousness connect to each other, interplay with each other. God cannot be unrighteous because he is holy. And so there's no chance of some sort of corruption of his fundamental nature in which he might not be in conformity to himself, right? Because holiness and righteousness are interrelated and connected to each other and in fact are the same thing in God, we see that his holiness is his righteousness and his righteousness is his holiness. And that's where we have to where we have to kind of land with it because it is a concept, although righteousness is a communicable attribute, we have to understand that righteousness in the creature, the continuity is that it has to do with conformity to a standard. In the creature, it's conformity to an external standard. In God, it's a conformity to his own self. That is what, right. what we mean when we talk about his righteousness. God is fundamentally consistent with the morality which is existent because of who and what God is. Morality just exists in that context. And God is conformed to that standard because he is consistent with himself. Right. I mean, this is, of course, where we get the term self-righteous, which to your point is right. more or less elevating, creating an idol out of own internal standards of what it means to conform to some kind of pattern of behavior. So right. when we say that, we're actually, again, imputing, to use that word again, a whole lot of theology being to be self-righteous is to set yourself up above God with respect to some kind of standard. And you know we throw that around, but the bottom line is that is our natural penchant, and that is to push against, to rebel against God by creating our own standard of behavior, our own standard of morality, especially and almost exclusively to make ourselves look or feel good, to feel accomplished, to have somehow merited some kind of favor in some kind of moralistic way. So I think maybe one place to close this out 
would be to anticipate what we're going to talk about in six or 10 or eight years about <laughs> how this all applies like into the Christian life. And I just want to draw a couple of verses by way of encouragement that brings together God's holiness and his righteousness and the imputation of those two things into our lives from Second Samuel 22, which is maybe like kind of a unexpected place to go, if only because like here we find a Psalm of David, but it's like kind of tacked on to this whole narrative of David's life. It's almost like they were like, we got extra scroll here. So what can we like kind of put on? Because <laughs> a lot has happened in David's life. And here you have this Psalm. And, and let me just share two verses. This is beginning in verse 21 of uh, chapter 22. The Lord dealt with me. Listen to these words. This is crazy. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to my the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. And I'm going to skip to verse 25. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And I bring yeah. these together as kind of like the bow on this like little episode that we've wrapped up because what's amazing about this is sometimes as Christians, we speak about the holiness of God and its application there onto into our lives and the righteousness of God as imputed to us through Christ, but the power of the Holy Spirit. We sometimes have this tendency, and this is well-intentioned, to say, well, when God looks at us, he like puts on these like Jesus-shaded glasses and he sees something of Jesus in us. That's not what the psalmist is saying here. Basically, he's appropriating the imputation of righteousness and holiness that God has granted him such that it is his, but it was a gift that came through Christ. It is really a diff, dis, diff, like discernible and definable quantity applied to the person through Christ, and we have to celebrate that. It's not like God's getting faked out as if like to right. see like, well, I see like part of Jesus in you, and it's like, man, it's a good thing that you look kind of like him. No, no, no. This is like... We all own things, right? That are gifts that have been given to us, but we still say we own those things, right? And this is that exact sense here. Like there is like this weightiness that the the psalmist can write. This is my righteousness. He claims it as his own while at the same time affirming that it was given to him. In other words, I'm going to come right back to what you said because it was right on. This is the beauty of the Christian gospel. This is the only thing that is... Well, let me say not the only thing, but it's one of the major things that separates the Christian worldview from any other religious or philosophical undertaking. And that is that God is eminent. He's close to us. He's God with us. He's God in us. It's the holying spirit that indwells us. And he is transcendent. Only Yahweh can accomplish that thing. And we right. see it manifested in exactly the way David writes here in Second yeah. Samuel. Yeah, and you know that that's I think that's a spot on way to end the episode. And here's here's a, a scripture that I want to read um, to sort of wrap it all up and to kind of cut just to sort of connect that that confessional language because, like I said, sometimes we think of holiness and righteousness as though they're basically synonyms, and you can kind of toss goodness into the mix. And so when we say that God is, um, you know, in His being, wisdom, power, and then holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, right? We kind of we kind of connect all of those things together and we sort of think of them as synonyms. Right. But uh, I want to read um, from Mark chapter 10. And this is the rich young ruler. It says, and as he was sitting, uh, setting out on his journey, he being Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Right. So right there we have that, right? God is God is good and only God is good. Nevertheless, Jesus continues. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. 
honor your father and mother. So he moves seamlessly from the idea that God is good and only God is good to now God's eternal law, his moral law, which flows out of his nature. So there's this relationship between God's nature and our standard of morality, our standard of goodness. So the same way that we say God is righteous in that he is internally consistent with his own holy self, we can say God is good because his own holy self is what goodness is. And so our understanding of goodness, our understanding of morality, our understanding of righteousness, all has to do and is wrapped up with conformity to, in our own creaturely way, conformity to the image of God and man. And so, so all of these communicable attributes, and we're not gonna we're not gonna do a full kind of like here are all the communicable attributes. We're not gonna do that episode. There's plenty of podcasts that have done those episodes. It's a fine thing to do. We're just not gonna do it. All of those communicable attributes are getting at the same thing. Ultimately, they're getting at the fact that man is created in the image of God. Right. And so in order to understand what it means to be good, what it means to be righteous, what it means to be holy, what it means to have wisdom, what it means to to be truthful, all of these other things, what it is to love, all of these things are about in humans living out the full potential of the image of God, to truly image God in our creaturely way. And to understand that we have to now look at God who is holy and righteous and good. And so we have to understand the first principle of God's goodness and God's righteousness and God's morality tied into his divine simplicity, understanding that those things are not somehow distinct from his very self, that to be good for God is the same thing as it is to be God for God. Those things right. are the, that's the same sentence. God is good. God is God. That's the same sentence when we talk about God in a proper sense. Creaturely reflection, we have to speak in analogical ways. It's different. But if we don't start there, and that's why it's so important, that's why we're spending time in this theology proper series to talk about this. If we don't start with that premise, that anything we talk about in terms of how God has chosen to save us, how God has revealed himself to us, how God has built the church, how God you know, determines to bring about the last days and the restoration of all things, how God has determined to save us, all of these things, if we don't ground that fundamentally in the nature of God and in understanding theology proper, and this is why, to go back to my denial, this is why this neo-Sassinianism is so dangerous. Because if you fundamentally have a picture of a God who has movement within himself, then you have abandoned the God of the Bible and you are subjecting God to change, which means that God may change what he thinks is good. Because that, that, that standard of goodness, which is God himself, might be different a hundred years or a thousand years or a hundred seconds from now. Right? So that standard of goodness is now changing. So, so it may seem like all of a sudden these, these moral attributes that we're talking about are somehow on a different different wavelength or a different category or a different you know importance from things like divine simplicity. But the reality is if we don't ground them in divine simplicity, if we don't understand how all of this plays together in this classical theism that we are advocating and that is just the historic position on, on theology proper, you lose sight of that and it has major implications as we work our way down. So I know it may feel like we're kind of like spinning our wheels in this theology proper and we're spending a lot of an inordinate amount of time in it, but it is so important for us to get right that you really can't spend too much time covering these topics. Right on. I mean, we're just leaning into it, right? We're kind of letting yep. ourselves marinate in it. We're taking a slow burn. We're 
Listen, you and I with the series, we're like a pot roast. You put that bad boy <laughs> in a crock pot and you want to let it sit for like five or six hours, right? You like, you want the meat to come off the bone. You want it to be juicy oh, yeah. and you know what I'm talking about. Like it's your typical Lord's Day meal. That's what you want. And so I would encourage all our brothers and sisters to come along for the ride and just don't try to move too fast. This is just a wonderful thing to marinate in, to soak up a little bit. And everything you just said absolutely preaches. Actually, speaking of preaching, seems like that's the kind of thing that we ought to give a book, like a topic. If there's a book we could give away about like Reformed preaching or preaching about Reformed things. If only there, there is a book that we can give away. <laughs> so we, we uh, as, as we've said in the, the several episodes previous to this, uh, we have such generous donors and listeners right who have partnered with us through Patreon, uh, which you, if you, if you, after you fulfilled your local commitment to your church and your commitment to just provide for your family and those around you who are in need, if there's a little bit left over and you want to help us out a little bit, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com. Uh, and there's a button that says join the brotherhood. There's a number of ways to do that. And one of those is Patreon and you can give us a one-time gift. You can join and, and give us a monthly gift, whatever you would like to do, whatever you have a budget for. But one of the things that enables us to do is to be able to give away some books. So this month we are giving away a book called Expository Preaching, which is in the PNR uh, Blessings of the Faith series. This entry is written by David Strain. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but I've, I've heard really good things about it. And we were lucky enough for PNR to provide us a couple copies uh, of these books to give away. So if you are interested in this book, and you should be interested in this book, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest or reformbrotherhood.com slash 261, and you'll find one of those little modules where you visit us on Facebook, you get an entry, you give us your email address, you get an entry, whatever. Um, And uh, we would love it if people would join that and would check that out uh, and spread the word. I mean, I know like you don't want to spread the word because that means you get like you're diluting your chance to win, but reality says you should just tell people about this podcast because we, (laughs) we think, you know, the gospel is important. Theology is important and we want to get the word out. So check it out, check out the contest, um, you know, enter to win and we're going to keep doing these. So you can always go back to reformbrotherhood.com. There's a very brief period when I'm switching over the contest where there's nothing going on, but uh, something like, I don't know, like 25 days out of the month, you're going to be able to go there and check out what we're giving away and win- and enter to win. I started laughing at the wrong time. Like history is not going to remember my laugh in that last sentence particularly well, because for some reason it just struck me as hilarious when you were like, reality tells you that you should share this podcast. And that <laughs> statement seemed funny, but then you were like, because the gospel. And I was like, oh man, I'm in too deep. <laughs> Jesse's laughing at the gospel. I've just Come laughed on, straight over the gospel. So yeah, loved ones, get on it. Again, we got free books. We want to make sure that we get them in your hands. So come and join us. That's and true. we haven't said this often or maybe recently, but if as we're going through the series, you think somebody could benefit from this episode, why don't you share it? Or actually better yet, why don't you share a conversation with somebody who has listened to this either like together, you could stare into each other's eyes and listen to the sweet <laughs> tones of Tony and I speak about holiness and righteousness. Or maybe it's just less awkward. You listen to it separately. You come together, have a cup of coffee, and you discuss it. But get after reform and get after speaking about the wonderful theology, about the goodness, the holiness, and the righteousness of God. And uh, man, I can't think of better ways to spend time, which is why we did it right now. I, I just got a really funny picture in my head, Jesse. You know how much I love The Office? <laughs> yes. And uh, Jim and Pam are like the, you know, they're like the love story that drives basically the entire first 
four or five seasons of the show. Right. And there's this scene where like, it becomes clear that they're eventually going to get together where they're standing in the parking lot, listening to music on Jim's iPod. Oh, yeah. and got, Each got one earbud in. I'm just seeing that scene, <laughs> but instead of the music, they're listening to the Reformed Brotherhood. So bringing people together. That's what we do. We need somebody who listens to us who has like the technological expertise to change that scene. And instead the music over is our intro. That would be fantastic. Us. That yeah. would be fantastic. Well, I would love that. I think uh, this has been great as usual. I love talking about this stuff with you, Tony. I, mean, I appreciate really just being able to get after the things of God. To know God and to love God is the greatest joy of our lives. And so talking about this and being inspired and encouraged to do these things, understand Him a little bit better in our finite minds is a beautiful and glorious way to spend time. So until we do this again, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.